Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for April has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Alex Ankerly. Ankerly. I, yeah. I I practiced that before we started, and I still I still stuttered on it. But and you are you're an ethnographer. Yes, I am. What's an ethnographer? So basically, we're field workers. We're working the field with actual human beings, with people. Weird. Yeah, yeah, but it's fun. It's fun. It's uh, it's basically an approach to working in different fields. So some people think it's a discipline or something like that, but it's not. It's really like an approach to do work that other people can't do. You're going to have to explain that a little further for me. Yeah. What kind of work? So um, it can be in social sciences in general, and specifically in cultural anthropology, in uh, sociology, even in economics, uh, and so on. Uh, we're trying to understand people and what is meaningful to them, what is important to them. So I tend to say that ethnography is a descriptive approach to cultural diversity. And it sounds a little bit uh, technical, but it's basically the the idea that we're not trying to uh, predict stuff or to convince people. We're trying to understand what is going on. So we're getting insight and it's about cultural context. Uh, so it can be any kind of cultural context, including uh, entrepreneurial culture, like uh, in a different business and something like that, to understand how people uh, live and work and uh, interact. And we do that by really hanging out with people, doing interviews, doing all sorts of things with them to construct the knowledge that we have about the situation. Okay. And as part of this, you deal with tech appropriation. How would you define tech appropriation? Well, tech appropriation, and basically I have, I can start with a punchline and then I can give you a little bit of the context. So to me, tech appropriation, when it's full, it can lead to being completely independent of the tools associated with the technology that we appropriate. So if you have uh, something like, let's say, a crutch, at one point, uh, you can get rid of it if your, you know, your your bones are are back uh, back in line, um, and it can be the same thing with scaffolding that uh, you need it for a certain time, but after a while, uh, that that you've built the building, you don't need uh, the scaffolding anymore. And in education, we actually talk about you know scaffolding as this thing that at one point you can lift. Uh, the scaffolding, but you still got, uh, you know, the building. And it can go, you know, very far. So some of those things are pretty much internal, like you build the equivalent of the technology in yourself so that you don't need it anymore. And it's the same thing with the quantified self. At some point, you may not need a pedometer if you uh, you know that you're walking enough every day and, and so on. Or even a heart rate monitor, you don't need to uh, to know every single second because you actually have a good, very good idea of how your heart is running. But it can be stuff that's pretty external, like uh, the MacGyver kind of thing. You you Do you remember MacGyver? Oh, or? yes. Oh, yes. 
I did never watched it actually. I, I'm old <laughs> enough to have watched it, but I, I never watched it. But just this idea that instead of using the tools that are meant to accomplish that very thing, you can use whatever else to accomplish that same thing. So what about cases where the technology uh, kind of defines a new a new action? Like take Twitter, for example. I mean, mm -hmm. how do you how do you stop using Twitter and still accomplish the same thing? It does does it function as a scaffold of any kind? It might for some people. So we have different different uses, diverse uses of Twitter. For some people, it's really a way to connect with people or to uh, generate some social capital, right? To 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 gain some connections. That's one meaning of social capital. To gain some connections and and to to. Uh, well, basically the woofy factor, right? Uh, that you gain some influence and, and things like that. So once you built up your network, you may not need Twitter anymore. It's a little bit like a scaffolding or, or a crutch. For other people, uh, Twitter is really a way to communicate with their friends and they have other ways to communicate with the same friends. So there are some specific behaviors that are associated with Twitter, but they can be brought to a new system without much of a, an impact. There are some people who are dependent on it because they haven't fully appropriated exactly what they're doing with it. I guess you would say that's that's my case. I uh, I don't have any way to communicate with the people that I'm communicating with through Twitter. Yeah. So it serves, it is my form of communication. There may be other things, I guess, that scaffold Twitter. Yeah. But, but like, unless with social services, unless you get a critical mass and all of your friends were to switch to a different social service or a different form of communication entirely, you kind of, you, you are dependent on one service. You might, but it, it's a whole social process, right? I'm a social scientist, so so that's what I care about. And if you think about that critical mass, you think, oh, well, you know, it might happen or not. But part of it is our own doing. So if you think about the whole group uh, becoming dependent of a tool or becoming independent of that tool, there's a lot that can happen. So if we decide as a group, all your friends together, we decide that we'll go to Diaspora instead of Facebook, you know, something that they, they tried to do, or app.net instead of Twitter, then you don't need Twitter anymore. You're independent of Twitter because you not only created the other tool, but you went there. You used it in a way that makes you independent from Twitter itself. Right. right. Gotcha. So... Uh, one of the things you mentioned to me early on in our, our conversations was uh, that innovation comes from the users. Yes. Like the, the technology is there, but the users kind of define it. Right, right. So uh, it's actually from uh, Michael Schrage. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> I didn't ask. I tried to, to look for videos and he wasn't pronouncing his name. Uh, but he's a professor at MIT uh, talking about innovation. And it's, you know, the quote is something about basically about consumers. Um, or maybe it's Harvard Business School or anyway, so, somewhere in Cambridge, uh, talking about consumers as defining products. And there's a lot of insight in that, is that obviously if you think about a tool that is not adopted by users, it's not useful, right? If there's nobody using your product, it's not doing anything. But it goes much further than that, is that a lot of the innovation comes from unintended uses, like subversions. 
And there's plenty of examples, like the MacGyver example is pretty much that, like you're subverting something that is meant for something else for your own needs. But users are doing that all the time. And some of them are very modest, like those users are very modest, but they're not expected by those who design the tools. And it is significant innovation. Because if you think about innovation, like uh, Horace Didu, another 5x5 podcaster, has been talking about innovation quite a bit recently, and he's defining it in a very specific way. And that way is that it's a unique, uh, a new and unique thing that is useful. Well, the usefulness is defined by usage, not defined by what people said it would be, right? Right. If it's not useful to you, it's not innovative, even though you think it is innovative. So if you're designing your own usage pattern around a tool, it becomes innovative, even if it's, you know, something else could accomplish the same thing. To you, it's an innovation. It's already meaningful and and significant. Okay, so I can think of one really good example of this, Mm -hmm. which would be uh, hashtags on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Even at mentions. Yes. These were user inventions that Twitter yes. then co-opted or adopted, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah, um, mostly. Yeah. What what other examples like what what major what things that we use every day now were actually user inventions, user uh uh kind of innovations? Well, there are so many. One that comes to mind right away is uh you know, use of recording technology. Um, and especially in music, uh, Edison planned the phonograph to really be about recording speech, a little bit like letters, to send audio letters to people. And he wasn't planning the technology to be used for music at all. Uh, but users have been using uh, that technology, not only to record uh, music, but also uh, environmental sounds and to do research and to do all sorts of things that were not planned. Sure. Well, and you look at uh, like the progression of recording, like yeah. once, once, once studios started using tape, mm-hmm. the things people started doing with it, like, I mean, tape reverb and backmasking and, and all exactly. kinds of re- uh, like reverse reverb and all these things that you could do if you, if you really uh, kind of played around with the, the tape medium. And then digital came along, and all of a sudden, all the all of those things could be simulated and more. And it almost like it's like the technology at that point followed what the users of the technology on tape had been doing. Yeah, and then built a system based on that kind of innovation. Yeah, when we switch in technology within the same technology sphere, we switch the tools very often we try to emulate what was there before. And a lot of people are talking about, oh, it's so silly to try to do the same thing. So skeuomorphism is uh, part of it. Like, why do we need to have this look like what we had before? But there's something about it that helps adoption, for one thing, but also that there might be a limit to our imagination, like other uses that we wouldn't imagine. There's a lot of things, including glitches in uh, digital recording. Uh, They don't sound so good, at least in the most uh, standards of audio processing. Uh, Whereas uh, analog technology, one thing is that um, distortion doesn't sound so bad. 
But digital distortion sounds pretty bad. But there have been entire genres of music built exactly. around that. Yeah. Exactly. So originally, you don't think about it as being a cool thing, but people appropriate it in a way that becomes cool. Yes. Okay. That, that, that's starting to make sense to me. Yes. Would you say that something like skeuomorphism acts as a scaffolding to uh, promote the adoption of new technology? It might. Uh, it might all like all scaffolding or the same thing with a crutch. When we talk about crutch, usually it's negative, right? It's a pejorative yeah. term. Uh, but it's useful at a certain time. It's just when you become dependent on it after it's uh, outlived its usefulness that it becomes a problem. So skeuomorphism, maybe it would have worked, uh, let's say, for the iPhone. It would have worked without it, possibly. Uh, but it served its purpose at a time, and now maybe we don't need it anymore. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. I mean, there was this huge backlash against skeuomorphism, but you didn't hear that when it first came out. Not to, not at the volume you heard it before iOS seven. Partly because we didn't know anything else. Right. Right. We we already had so many examples of skeuomorphism. It was not a new concept. But at the same time, we didn't see the difference between that and something else. Most innovation is, well, a lot of innovation uh, is things that we can't even plan. People try to plan them like, yeah, in, in 20 years, this is what we'll see. And science fiction is a lot about that kind of thing. But we all know that the future looks very different from how we expect it, right? Or, or how we hope, yeah. Yeah, even, yeah. So it's neither dystopic nor utopic or utopian and dystopian. Uh, it's something else. It's just different. So are, are science fiction authors a form of ethnographers? Sometimes. Sometimes it can help. Sometimes the, they're in tune with something. At least it's the same kind of insight. What they generate is not really a prediction usually. Sometimes, you know, they try to predict the future, but they're trying to invent it. Right. And they're trying to play with, if this happens, what does it mean for people, for society, for me, for, you know, whatever. So if, the, if it were possible to have a time machine, what would it mean? And then you think about all the logical consequences of that, including the fact that it's impossible to have a time machine because blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. But uh, science fiction authors, some of them are really in tune with what is going on now. So they can tell us a lot, not about the future per se, but what about people hoped at a certain time Who? and were tr trying to create. Yeah. What, do you read a lot of science fiction? No. Okay. <laughs> Almost none at all. I, I, I tried. It's not my kind of thing. Okay. It, seem, it seems to me like I'm drawing this parallel between ethnography and, and sci-fi mm -hmm. and I can see where it falls apart pretty quickly. But, uh, but it does seem like these, the, the, the authors that are in tune with the now are also, they're also studying how, how people are appropriating tech and how that might happen in the future. Yeah. I see that. I see Ray Bradbury yeah. as being kind of visionary in that regard. Well, and obviously a lot of science fiction is a commentary on current society. Right. And especially Bradbury. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Stanislav Lem is one that I enjoyed. 
I read one book, I don't remember the title. It sounded a lot like what The Matrix came out to be, about we live in this world that is actually not what we see. Uh, it was actually very similar, and it was a lot of social critique. Right. And and that's not... Ethnographers are more uh, looking to discover uh, the reality rather well, than critique society, right? It depends. It depends. It's very broad because it's an approach. It's not just a, a discipline or... A, you know, a bunch of people. Um, so some ethnographers are actually doing a lot to make things change. But typically, I think the, the, the most appropriate role is to be the person to help others make decisions by themselves. So not the person who is necessarily in charge, but a person who will, will be kind of the typical consultant when you're a consultant, and basically that's part of what I do, I'm a freelancer as a research, uh, you know, uh, independent researcher. Uh, but one thing that happens is that I tell people, I ask people questions, and then they get insight, not by what I tell them, but just by thinking about the question. Okay. Right? So yeah. something, some things are very obvious, but they're only obvious when you think about them. My yeah, favorite example, okay. uh, which is not from my own research, but uh, it's very nice. It's uh, an ethnographer working in a hospital who was uh, basically noticing that there were a lot of problems between the staff and the patients. And, you know, the, the hospital itself, the administrators were saying, we don't know what's going on. You need to find what's going on. There's a problem. We don't know what it is. We've done surveys, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not working. And the ethnographer just asked a few patients about uh, some things. And everyone was talking about the fact that the, the, the ceilings hadn't been painted in years. And patients are, you know, in beds right. uh, a lot of the time. So they look at ceilings a lot and staff members don't. There's no survey in the world, I can almost guarantee it, that would ask a question about the ceilings. Sure. But once you think about it, it's like so obvious. Sure. Yeah, no, just, that makes sense. And just by asking the question, did you think about the ceilings, it can change something. So it's not by saying, I, I personally want it to change. Sometimes it might be to say there is a dysfunction in this society. You say it's about free speech, but people don't feel free to speak up. That's a dysfunction, right? Not saying that it's necessarily bad, but saying, well, you want this, and what you get is something else. Have you thought about what it really means? I've always been very anti-focus group when it comes to <laughs> yeah. product releases. Mm -hmm. But it sounds to me like if a focus group were to ask the right questions. Yes. I, I, it seems like it would be more productive to just observe. Yes, exactly. Then there may be a place for that kind of thing. I've always appreciated uh, Apple's approach to basically just saying we'll release what we think is right for you. And and you guys can catch up with with what we figured out, and it's always worked for them. I could see in ninety percent of cases that not being a feasible uh, strategy, right? But there you... there seems to be like um, an envelope of adoption, like a, a a bell curve, if you will, with new technologies among the general the general public. Absolutely. Have you? Is there a standard like when a new technology is introduced? And and the the public is first faced with a new medium, 
or mm-hmm. a new a new tool. Is there a specific kind of pattern that it follows as far as adoption across the public? Yeah, we can talk about that. I, I do want to answer a little bit about focus groups because oh, it is do. interesting. Yeah. It, it is part of our work. Sometimes we're forced to do focus groups, right? Uh, because our clients, I do some of my work with like an agency that has a client that's a corporate entity. Um, and they force us to do focus group. Something that was very insightful from an ethnographer, Michael Agar, uh, who told us at uh, Ethnography Symposium Colloquium, if you are forced to do focus groups, you don't tend to like them at all. We don't like focus groups, but to have discussions with people that are open-ended and, and so on, that's part of our you know, tool base. But if you are forced to do a focus group, the thing to do is to put the decision maker in the middle as the moderator, because they will typically say, oh yeah, we know what people say about us. Like it's their employees and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I know what my employees are saying about me or about our company. The same thing with customers and so on. But you put that person in the middle as the moderator, they can't speak much because they're moderating, right? They're not the ones even, well, they might ask the questions, but they're not supposed to to put forth their own things. And they're being told exactly what it really is. I've done it on occasion. It's awesome. Because it is observation. When you're observing what's going on as a dynamic, someone who is basically speaking truth to power, it's awesome the results that it does. Because the people who really have the insight are not the ones you would expect. It can be the secretary. It can be a guard in a museum. It can be whatever the person is. Like If you think about the guard in a museum, they're you know, guards in general. They're, they're the ones who really know what's going on, which pieces are most appreciated, uh, and how long people spend in what, and you know people's reactions. It's not part of their job, but they really notice that. Sure. So if you get them to speak up, even though the the manager will say, "Well, you know, she doesn't know anything about art, and it's an art museum," uh, they actually probably know a lot about what is actually going on. So in terms of uh, the ad- adoption curve, uh, there's Everett Rogers who wrote uh, The Diffusion of Innovation that has been used a lot like laggards and early adopters and all of that. It's an interesting pattern and it's one that is also easy to criticize because it tends to assume that the end goal is to have saturation, that everyone will use your tools. Right, that the innovation will be ubiquitous. Right, especially if you're selling something, it makes a lot of sense to assume that. But that's not necessarily what happens. You know that the fact that everyone has a fridge, pretty much in North America and in most places that are, you know, uh, not too cold. Uh, even though Minnesota and Quebec are both pretty cold. Uh, <laughs> You know, the the fact that people have fridges, yeah, it makes money for some people. But does it mean that it's the best thing to have at a certain time uh, to, you know, it changed a number of things. But is it really the best thing to have? We don't really know. So the pattern does tend to be from early adopters who who number, you know, very small numbers, right? There, there, There are very few early adopters. And there's a tendency to think that a person is an early adopter as kind of part of their almost personality. It's more complicated than that, right? You have someone who's maybe an early adopter for one thing and a lagger for something else, 
And they're allowed to make their own decisions. If they don't want to adopt the technology, they don't want it, and maybe they don't need it. Even for the internet itself, I know a number of people who are not online, and they don't need to be online. They don't suffer from the digital divide. They act, they're actually on the right side of the digital divide because if they want something to be done, they can get it done just by asking somebody else to do it. They have agency. They're able to act, right? Sure. But they're, they, they would be considered laggards because they're not online. And they may be teased and so on, especially we think about them as being old people. Uh, some of my students uh, are pretty young and, well, they're basically forced to be online, but some of them don't spend any time online. They really don't want to. They feel forced to be, uh, to be online. They don't like it. So you might tease them and all of that, but it's their right, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about this as a pattern, like basically a bell curve, that there are very few laggards because at one point it's almost everyone who uses a certain technology. Yeah, okay, it looks good on paper, but there's something missing in terms of how people appropriate the tools, not just adopt the tools and be you know, customers of that brand or whatever else, but actually creating other things that take the place of something else. It's kind of disruption theory applied even to technology as a whole. That sometimes it's not even about a new product, it's just like you don't even need a product to accomplish the same thing. So the pattern is that there are some people who are associated with a movement that, okay, they're early adopters. Typically, they will be young men or something like that, especially if it's uh, for the kind of tools that are created by other young men. Sure. You know, the scratch your own itch idea. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense for developers, right? Uh, to scratch their own itch. They have a problem to solve. The engineering mind frame is to solve problems. It's not a stereotype, it's just a mind frame that you use that you, your idea is to solve a problem that is there in the world. That's great. But if the only problems you see are the problems you have, there's a problem for society as a whole. Your mother doesn't have the same problem as you do, and your children won't have the same problems as you do. And uh, not only generationally, but across the world, if you think about it, is that, you know, a very few young men in the U.S., in specific parts of the U.S., typically from a middle class background, college educated and all of that, are deciding what are the problems to be solved. And they're the ones also who are early adopters of a lot of those solutions. So it makes sense socially that you would work like that, but it doesn't mean that it's the best pattern to have. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break and we can come back and chat a little. Maybe we'll talk about your accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. This episode has been brought to you by HostGator, which offers Linux VPS hosting that can be customized to match your needs and upgraded at any time. Fully managed with 24-7, 365 support, they offer one-click install of whatever compatible software you need, and the servers are scalable, so adding more resources is easy. Visit HostGator.com and use the code DANSENTME for 50% off of all VPS hosting. All right. Ooh. So I'm detecting an accent. I think uh, it sounds Australian. Is that correct? No. no, no. 
No, actually, you know, you know what it is because uh, you know I told you and I even just said you know, about uh, Minnesota and another place that's pretty cold. <laughs> so I'm from Montreal. And so, uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Tell me about Montreal. Yeah. So for one thing, my accent typically, either in French or English, is not typical of Quebec. My father is Swiss, hence my name. You know, uh, people have been teasing me like uh, some students have created the Anchorman group on Facebook. So E-N-K-E-R-M-A-N. Um, yeah, you know, people are teasing me. Uh, but even when I was a kid, uh, I was t taken to be uh, a damn French because Quebecois don't necessarily like uh, French people that much, people from France. I'm not from France. My father is from Switzerland, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm born and raised in Montreal. And uh, my accent in French is actually pretty European. And in English, well, it's a bastardized accent because I did live in different parts of the U.S. and also in other places in Quebec. I've, I live a large part of my life in English, but I'm really uh, a French speaker through and through. My father doesn't know a word of English. Uh, he's been here for like 42 years in Montreal. <laughs> um, and uh, my mother is from uh, Eastern Quebec, uh, from a pretty uh, representative uh, part of Quebec. My ex is Acadian. I lived in uh, Francophone West Africa. At least the, the official language was French. Uh, I spent some time in France. So I basically can understand something like five varieties of French. And mine is bastardized. And my variety of English is influenced by all of those influences. So which language do you, do you have more fun speaking? English or French? French. French. And, and it's actually a very specific variety of French that does have some loan words from English. Like I'm at my best when I'm in a bilingual context in the sense that people at least understand both languages. That's yeah. awesome. I have some friends or even with my father when I really have to stop myself from using any word in English. I can do it, but it's an effort. It's not sure. fun. Uh, but vice versa also, like speaking only English for a while, yeah, it's, it's, it's okay. But once in a while, it's, it's fun to go back to, to my own uh, variety of French, which is kind of weird. Yeah, yeah no, I don't, I don't think that's weird at all. That's kind of I, – I took uh, Spanish in high school, mm -hmm. and I, I can't speak a word of Spanish, but I can understand it when people speak it. yeah. I shouldn't say I can't speak a word. I can figure out how to say what I need to say, yeah. but I'm I'm far from fluent. But I can I can understand it, and I and when immersed in it, things begin to I I don't have to think about it as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in the languages that I speak, I don't have to translate at all. Like as I'm speaking now, I don't have to translate from French, and I couldn't. Like I'm not very good at translating. I can do it, you know, when uh, when I'm forced to, but it's not my forte. And the same thing, my third language, which I don't know so well, but I don't have to translate uh, when I speak it, is Bamana from West Africa, right? Uh, I did field work in Mali, West Africa, and uh, speaking it, I'm not saying I'm fluent, but I don't have to to translate. I don't have to to overthink it. And that's yeah. that's a fascinating concept to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I've I've seen it work in my own brain, but yeah. to be able to associate 
Yeah. Two words and two forms of conjugation and and two completely different like pictographic examples of the same word and be able to understand them in in strings. That is I don't know, that's kind of fascinating. It is. And I, I happen to be a linguistic anthropologist, so I, I work specifically on language. That's part of my background. And part of what we say about bilingualism and all of that, there's been a, a tendency in the U.S. to say that, you know, those who are bilinguals are bad at both languages. That's not what we really see. If you do research on that kind of thing, that's not really what happens. In terms of cognition, actually, it helps to speak multiple languages. Uh, and these days, people even in the U.S. are more open to, uh, you know, uh, polyglots, to, to bilingualism and multilingualism. And in fact, most of the planet is multilingual. Most yeah. people on the planet are not monolingual. As, a, as, as an American, I'm painfully aware that everyone I talk to from other countries can speak not only my language, but their own language. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it very often is like they speak three, four, five languages, like a local language, a regional language, a national language, and then an international language. Like in India, they speak uh, very commonly four or five languages. Uh, my partner is uh, an Armenian from Beirut, and she speaks, you know, her, her uh, well, her English, which is actually her dominant language now, is her third language, and French is her fourth, but she's as good in French as I am. And her native language is Armenian, her second is Arabic. They're not even related, no, no. right? And, and, you know, she can switch back and forth and so on. She says that she's losing her Armenian, but it's more about self-consciousness than anything else. Sure. I have enough trouble just switching between Ruby and Python. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there, there are connections between computer languages and human languages, you know, natural languages that humans speak and use or sign, uh, like uh, ASL, American Sign Language. Yeah. Uh, but they're not so easy. They're not straightforward. People tend to think about them as being, you know, very similar. They're not. You know, no computer language is really like plain English. Apple Talk was kind of close. Apple Script, sorry, uh, was kind of close. But even then, it's it's very far because language is not just about codifying. These are the words I'm going to say, and this is how the information will be transmitted. That's not how we understand language. Noam Chomsky, we, we tend to be pretty much... Uh, critical of him because he's uh, he's had a stronghold on language sciences for a while. And uh, he was only doing research on a few aspects of language. Like he didn't think that language had to be meaningful to be interesting. But uh, one thing, one insight that he had early on uh, that's pretty important is that the way we process language is not by decoding. It's like not like a modem or like a, a codec. It's not that we encode language and then we receive it and we take out a part of it. It's that we have a schema in our heads and we get some information and we try to make it fit in specific ways. It's very, very different from uh, information theory. Even though information theory was kind of based on communication, like you know, human communication, it works really well for television or, or modems or uh, codecs or things like that, but not so well for what people actually do with language. So if you think about appropriating language, is it means that the technology that language is, 
is awesome. It's very complex, but you can make it do things that were not even meant to be there. Sure. To convey more things, to to generate emotions in someone, to uh, to do all sorts of things that are like to force someone to do something, uh, or to make something happen just by saying, "I now pronounce you husband and wife." If you're a priest uh, in the right context, it means the the act of speech will actually have that impact. So language is fascinating, uh, and it does bear some similarities with computer languages. But it's also very different, and that's also something that's uh, very powerful. Have you ever read A Mouthful of Air by Anthony Burgess? Nope. He, uh, he was the guy who wrote Clockwork Orange. Yep. And uh, he did a piece, uh, a book on everything from like the mechanics of language to uh, the best ways to learn a foreign language and the importance of slang in a dialect and yeah. all of these things. I was just curious because I've read a lot of Burgess and Chomsky, and yeah, <laughs> and I, I don't know what to be critical of. No, but you know, I, I was saying that about critiques of Chomsky just because it's close to my heart. But at the same time, you know, the insight about language, there's a lot of things to be said that are pretty interesting. Uh, the way you talk about Bur Burgess's uh, book, it sounds a little bit like a friend of mine, uh, Michael Erard, uh, wrote a book called Um about hesitation, another one about uh, hyperpolyglots, people who speak, uh, you know, 12 languages or, you know, 200. Um, and there's a lot of work on language that is happening these days that's pretty interesting because it goes beyond just the structure of language. It's what people do with language, do with words. It's the same thing with technology in general. And that's why I find it so interesting. So something I didn't um, uh, bring up, but I think it's pretty uh, useful, pretty important. So because it ties uh, technological appropriation with ethnography, I think it's pretty interesting. And it's actually the reason I contacted you uh, about this is that in episode 90, you were talking with Zach uh, Kane about uh, the fact that you feel you're disconnected from the average user. Right, so that's yeah. uh, you don't necessarily know what people want and need, which is exactly the kind of thing that we do. So in ethnography, uh, what we actually do is look at what people, how people use tools and what they actually need. Not only what they say they need, but what they actually do need based on their behavior, based on interactions they have with others. So one example is that um, uh, we have a fab lab. So a fabrication lab with, you know, all sorts of tools to create uh, neat things like a hacker space, but with uh, a kind of a more ethnographic background. We sure. actually document and, and observe what's going on, right? Um, and someone was saying, well, okay, for documentation, and there were actually librarians saying, how can we document what's going on there? And someone said, well, it's not like we can stand behind the user and look at what they do. And another anthropologist and me, we were looking at each other saying, basically thinking, that's exactly part of what we do. <laughs> and it sounds trivial, but when you actually do it, it's very, very insight producing. So some of the projects we've done, like one was with um, a craftsmaker circle in Ontario, Fran Francophones in Ontario. Uh, the average age was 68 years old. So we think, oh, older people, they don't know technology, but they're craftsmaker. They're basically like engineers with or without math. Uh, sure. Some of them are pretty good in math, 
But even knitting, these days knitting is getting pretty geeky. Uh, no, but it, it, it does. Like yeah, people no, are no. doing yarn bombing and all of that. They're hackers. Yeah. And they're so good at appropriating technology. It's so natural for them, right? It's so obvious. So they go like, uh, oh, what do we do with... Uh, with bags that we get, uh, there's this thing that we get called Publisac, like uh, all the uh, the pamphlets that we get, they put it in a, in a plastic bag. And what they do with that, they, they make thread out of it so that they can weave it. And that, you know, it's so simple. And you look at how they use those bags and they make baskets, they, they make, uh, you know, they weave it into uh, bags. Uh, that are pretty uh, cool looking and so on. Uh, they can do the same thing with the VHS tape. You know, it's not useful anymore, but they can reappropriate VHS tapes to be thread that they will use to make, you know, even clothing or hats or whatever it is. Um, so this kind of uh, work that we do, it's not by doing reports or something like that. It's not by getting a, you know, a representative portrait of how many people use this tool or that tool. It's actually to get people to act uh, directly by asking them a few questions and getting them together to, to do cool stuff. So it's about co-creation, co-construction. We're building stuff together. And that's pretty neat because we trust people not to be the inventors, but to be collaborators in a process that goes beyond just saying this is the design like a la Apple, like what Apple would do to say, okay, this is what you need and we'll sell them to you. It's actually like, we're not really sure what we need, but maybe we can build stuff together and maybe we don't need to buy so much stuff. Because appropriation at one point, it can get pretty philosophical. If you think about it, the richest people in the world are those who don't even need money. Sure. And the same thing with technology. A lot of people don't need much technology. They're not dependent on it. And they can do cool things when they do use it because they understand how it works. Yeah, that makes sense. It's obvious if you, if you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to do our uh, second sponsor, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite applications in the world. It's uh, Text Expander from Smile. Uh, it saves you time and effort by expanding short abbreviations in a frequently used text and pictures, including fill-ins to customize your common responses. You can save time and effort with Text Expander. Whether it's a simple email signature or several paragraphs of standard response, you'll love how easy it is to use Text Expander to avoid typing the same thing over and over. And you can make customized boilerplate replies fast and easy using fill-ins. You can use the built-in groups for HTML, CSS, autocorrect, accented words, and symbols, insert the current date and time in any format you prefer, and create snippets from Apple scripts and shell scripts for powerful integrations. You can sync snippets via Dropbox and use them on multiple devices with Text Expander Touch on iOS. Text Expander is available from Smile for $34.95, and a free demo download is found at smilesoftware.com slash textexpander. Text Expander Touch is available on the App Store for $4.95, and a list of supported apps can be found at smilesoftware.com slash apps. And I use Text Expander uh, minute by minute. I, I, I couldn't function without it. And if you listen to this show and you haven't tried Text Expander yet, I feel like you're letting me down. I feel like you really need to just go get it right now. Yeah. 
So yeah. you depend on it. I, I very much depend on it. And I, I, it's not a crutch as much as it is a, uh, an extension of myself. I could type all this stuff hand by hand, but for example, the show notes for this show, mm-hmm. I can just type comma, comma show notes and it'll build out my entire skeleton for my show notes. It'll ask me who my sponsors are. It'll insert all the text for like the default text for the sponsors It'll leave a blank space with uh, one, two, three, where I'll put in my top picks, and it'll ask me your name and what episode number it is, and it'll fill in everything, and I'm ready to go. Pops up. It fills it in in Markdown. It pops up in my preview. I have fully formatted show notes ready to go, and I typed, what, eight characters? Yeah. And what's funny is that our first interaction, you probably don't remember, but it was related to uh, Texas Mander. Really? Yeah. No, I don't remember. No, no, it's a, I asked you for a script to, um, I think it was to uh, get short URLs or something like that, or maybe to convert uh, markdown lists and you created it very quickly. Of course quickly, I did. Obviously. <laughs> and actually, you know, donated some money uh, just because I was so happy. Uh, and it was to, to use it basically with text expander. So now when I do, uh, all of my uh, shortcuts pretty much start with X because I don't use X as the first letter for most things. I'm not Xavier, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know it's X uh, URL, and then I get an expanded uh, uh, link with a short URL and, and things like that. Right? Nice. Yep. Yeah. That sounds like something I would do too. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the top three. Yeah. So, what's your first pick for the the week? So I went ADB in honor of the Apple desktop bus. You know, last week it was about ABC, but uh, ADB. Right on, right on. So the first one is an app. Um, so I happen to be an ethnomusicologist. Uh, I work on music, and I, I've been teaching a course uh, about music and, and so on in a cultural context. And I care a lot about uh, musicking, which is musical participation that's not necessarily playing music professionally or commercially or even listening to music commercially, but it's actually about participating in your own musical stuff. So a lot of people say, oh, uh, I don't know anything about music. I'm not a musician. I don't know how to read music, but they can still music. They can do musicing. So the app is called Thumb Jam. Thumb like the, the finger and jam as, uh, you know, jelly. Um, so it's on the App Store, obviously. It's for iOS. Uh, it's universal. It's nine bucks. And uh, what it's basically not like a keyboard, but it's really an instrument uh, that, that uses, uh, it's a little bit hard to, to say, but a little bit like a grid. And uh, the way you Use it is by basically just sliding your finger or pressing uh, different keys, um, and it's very versatile. So, um, it, it you know the preset sounds are pretty cool. And it has a lot of controls for expressiveness, right? Uh, so you can actually shape. To, uh, to do pitch band or to do tremolo or vibrato. Uh, also, you can do uh, all sorts of neat things with 
you know, glissando and all sorts of things like that. And uh, one thing that is cool is that it has uh, a number of scales that you can use. So we can use engine scales uh, as well as uh, the more uh, usual stuff. Uh, and some of these sound really, really good, especially when you know you want to to sound engine, let's say. Um, and uh, I've been using it in conjunction with some other apps to uh, to basically play, you know, uh, the, the equivalent of doodling, but with music. A little bit like noodling, but, uh, you know. Moodling. Uh, yeah. Well, Moodle is actually a, a, a course platform, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. I remember that stuff. Yeah, Moodle. yeah. I actually use it. Yeah. It's been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I should know that. Yeah, and it's uh, and seriously, the sounds, there's a lot of sounds that are available with it, and, and they sound pretty good. Nice. Have you ever seen Bebot? Yes, yes. I think you. It was a pick at uh, at some was point. Or, I don't remember. I just I've loved Bebot for yeah forever. I it came out. It was out with like the very first iPhone. Yeah, it was the first music app I had on my phone, and I still love playing with it. Driving my wife nuts in bed yeah. with it. That sounded dirty, but like I'll yeah, lay yeah. I'll lay in bed. We'll be going to sleep, and I'll be playing with Bebot. I'll have to try this thumb jam out. Thumb jam sounds like a sports in injury. <laughs> yeah, and actually, uh, Bebot is uh, something that I presented about. Uh, I'm pretty sure I mentioned you because I, I got it through you, and uh, in a presentation about musicing, about uh, you know doing cool stuff with iOS apps and and so on. Even Android, although latency on Android is pretty uh, uh, wide, so it's it's more difficult to have cool music apps on Android. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, my first pick this week is it's not as of today, right now, at this moment, you cannot get it. But by the time this podcast comes out, you should be able to. It's called Movie Do on the iPhone. And mm -hmm. I probably iPad. I haven't tested it on the iPad, but I've been beta testing it on my iPhone. And I don't have a price for you. But what it is, is you can basically go through a feed that you can find any movie ever in it. And you can get uh, reviews, you can get uh, summaries, you can get a list of the cast, you can link to IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, you can, you can view the trailer on YouTube or in Safari, and then you can add it to a list. So anytime you see a preview or a movie that you wish you had seen or one that's not out yet, you can add it to a list and you can have as many lists as you want, movies to see, favorite movies, whatever you want. And then... Uh, you can go into your lists and you can check things off as you see them or, you know, leave them if it's a list of your favorite movies after you see them and have all the information you need. When you, when you mention it's all gone Pete Tong to somebody and they have no idea what you're talking about, you can quickly pull it up, give them a list of all the cast members, the summary synopsis and the, the trailer all in one place. And it's simple. And there have been a lot of apps that, allow you to collect lists and some that were even specifically movie lists, but this one incorporates everything related to a movie that you would want. And I find it, mm. it's, it's perfect for, for me because my wife and I spend, we'll open up trailers on the Apple TV and we'll just watch a dozen trailers in a row for movies that we might want to see. 
And every once in a while, we'll see one, and we'll write it down. And we both keep, like, plain text lists of movies we're going to see. Mm-hmm. This is awesome. This is perfect for that. But then uh, you have such a long list of movies to see that you don't see anything? <laughs> no. We, uh, we, we just basically randomly pick movies. Oh, that's good. Uh, or, and it's nice when you're waiting for movies to come out uh-huh. to be able to check once in a while. And they're not always uh, featured on like iTunes homepage. Yeah. So sometimes you'll be waiting for a movie to come out and you won't see it on the list and you'll forget about it. Yeah. Our, our lists make it easy to go, Hey, did the Sapphires make it onto iTunes yet? And then yeah. boom, there it is. I just watched it last week and it was awesome. Yeah. That could be useful in Canada because uh, a lot of things don't ever see the light of day in Canada in those services. They're really us centric, right? Like we have Netflix, but uh, the selection on Netflix is abysmal. Uh, well, that's true everywhere. iTunes, I could see that being an issue, though. Well, even even uh, iTunes. Uh, I was talking with a f- uh, documentary filmmaker, who the, the one who did uh, Helvetica. Yeah, it's an, and uh, I think uh, some of his movies weren't available on on Netflix on uh, iTunes. In 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 Canada or everywhere? Yeah, yeah, in Canada. Huh. Yeah. yeah, that would be, that'd be rough. Yeah. One, yeah, one, that's one of the things I miss from the U.S. It's yeah. actually the availability of things like that. Yeah, there are a lot of things I don't like here, but I will count. Um, I will count iTunes. Yeah. And Netflix among the things that are benefits to, uh, to the U.S. Yeah. All right. So, what's your number two? So it's a device, um, and it's uh, basically my headset. Uh, I'm using it right now, but not for the microphone, just to make sure it's well separated. But I do use it uh, with the microphone to, uh, like, on FaceTime or something like that. And it's a Bluetooth headset uh, called Tenka Remix. So T E N Q A. And actually, I'll, I'll give you the link. But uh, TNQA is the, the company and uh, Remix uh, with R-E-M-X-D. Um, and what I like is that because it's Bluetooth, uh, you know, I don't have to have wires with it. And what it makes as a difference is pretty big that I can use my iPad or I also have a Nexus 7 tablet. Um, I can use those to listen to podcasts, let's say. It sounds like nothing, but it changes a lot of things for me uh, in terms of not, you know, uh, taking space on my iPhone or taking the juice out of my iPhone as I'm listening to uh, to podcasts. Um, it also makes it like if I do FaceTime with it or even just a phone call with it, uh, it means that I can just walk around and I don't need to, uh, you know, to even have my my phone with me. It can be somewhere else, or you know, if it's charging or something like that. So it's pretty neat. Nice. Yeah, they look cool. They look like yeah. Yeah, my uh, I, my favorite pair of headphones is still my um, Urban Beats headphones, and they look almost exactly like that. Nice padded over the ear. Yeah, yeah, cool. And and it does have a remote on it, uh, so you can fast forward and and rewind and, and things like that. It's a little bit quirky, like it's a little bit weird the way it is because to uh, increase the volume, you actually do the same thing as fast forward and you hold it. Um, but still, you can pause and play. And uh, even another button is for to answer calls or to use Siri. So, you know, it's pretty useful for that. Nice. Yeah. Cool. All right. What's yours? Yeah. Mine is, I've been, uh, m- my 
my interest in astronomy never goes away, but sometimes it's stronger than other times. And the recent uh, eclipse of the moon was a good reason oh. to get out and take a look. Um, and I've been out quite a few nights since. And my favorite app right now, well, it has been for a long time. There have been a lot that have come and gone, but my favorite one for astronomy is Go Skywatch. Mm. And once you have it calibrated, um, you can point your phone at any object in the sky and it will tell you what you're looking at. And there are a few that do that. Um, this one for me is the most intuitive and, mm-hmm. uh, and the most uh, informative. And you can, you can fast forward times and see where things will be when you're actually going to be able to see them, see when things are going to come above the horizon and mm-hmm. watch, like you can see the path of the moon and what times it'll be in the sky where all the planets are. And then if you're into like remote, uh, remote astronomy, like using, um, telescopes over the internet, you can, uh, Mm -hmm. you can get really good readings on what the sky is going to look like at the time you're on. Like for me, I use uh, telescopes in New Mexico and Australia. Mm -hmm. So it's really handy to be able to punch in a location and take a look at what's, you know, deep space visible, far enough above the horizon away from the moon to actually get good photos from. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my pick. It's been around for a long time. It's very cool. I, uh, I forget how much it costs and I forgot to look it up, but it's not, it's not like a dollar 99 app. I don't think at least it didn't used to be. Hold on. Mm. I'll find it. And you can find that on app shopper, right? It's a pretty good uh, way to see the history of prices. Whoa, it says it's free now. Oh, cool. So it's not a $1.99 app. Nope. There's got to be an in-app purchase. I must be looking at... What's this? Yeah, okay. Uh, I believe... I believe the actual version I'm using is three ninety nine now. Okay, yeah. There's a free version, though, so you can try it out. Sure. And is the the sky pretty clear where you're at right now? No, I mean uh, in general. Yeah, because it's it's not a big city. No, right? oh no, I live I live in a small town and I live outside of the main town. Oh yeah. And it, once it gets past like ten at night, yeah. the lights go down and you can see everything. It's okay. amazing. I love it. Not the case in Montreal. The light pollution here is pretty big. And in fact, like we, we do have a, a big telescope uh, in Quebec, like uh, 200 miles from here or something. And they, they talk a lot about light pollution. It's a big problem. Yeah, no, I, I, I've experienced that. I've lived in some big cities. Yeah. But the, the beautiful thing about having access to telescopes in remote New Mexico yeah, is you can just check the weather forecast, and if there's no clouds in the sky, you you're gonna have a good night. Yeah, nice, nice, cool. So number three. So B is for beer. Uh, I used to be a home brewer for ten years, uh, so I care about quality beer. I respect beer, as uh, some sites say. And uh, to keep on with, uh, you probably didn't notice, but I uh, the first two started with T, so I I. I found a brewery uh, that I actually like uh, that starts with T, so it's uh, Trou du Diable, uh, which <laughs> I means have no the devil. You just said, yeah, Trou du Diable. Uh, I'll send you the link, but okay. it's uh, the Devil's Hole. The so, Devil's uh, Hole. Yeah. 
Okay. Tru, tru is hole, and diable is devil. Sure, okay. So it's the devil's hole. And in Quebec, uh, for some reason, the beer scene has connected a lot with um, religion, especially with, with things that are, you know, like devil and things like that. We have a lot of fairy tales that uh, that have to do with devil doing all sorts of things. Um, for instance, Unibrou, which is possibly the best-known Quebec uh, brewery, um, uses a lot of uh, religious uh, symbols and so on. Like la it means the damned. Well, it's a beer uh, you know, that they have. But Rue du Diable is from Shawinigan, which is uh, a, a fairly small uh, town in Quebec, in, um, uh, well, central Quebec, actually, in uh, Mauricie. And they have beers that are pretty different from what you would expect elsewhere. So Shelton Brothers carries them in the US. Uh, so you can look up, uh, I'll send you a link, but they, they, you can look up uh, where they sell it. Uh, so I, I did check and it is supposed to be available in Quebec. I don't know how much. And by the way, the, the headphones are uh, $39, right? Okay, cool. So, yeah. Uh, but Trou du Diable, like, uh, you know, uh, they're a little bit more expensive than uh, some other even craft beers. Uh, typically, they're sold in larger bottles, but they're pretty good. And my favorite brewery is actually Dieu du Ciel, which uh, is an expression a little bit like, oh, my God. But it says uh, God of the sky, which is a little bit uh, weird. But <laughs> since it's in Montreal, it's actually walking distance from here. Uh, it's a brew pub and also a microbrewery. It, it was one of the best rated beers in the world for a couple of years. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to have something with tea because uh, you have uh, three T's in your uh, domain name, and I thought it was funny. <laughs> all right, you're all about patterns and uh, and associations. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, send me a link. I, I did find. I, I won't even try to say it, but the Devil's Hole website. Yep. But cool. uh, but I can't read anything on the page, so you'll have to link me to what you want me to show to show people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Um, my last pick is the website forecast.io. And if you're not familiar with it, 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 for me, it has replaced most weather apps on my phone and on my computer. I, it's rare for that to happen, but I actually just go, I have, I have uh forecast.io saved as a, a web app on my computer, on my iPhone. And that's what I usually load to get the current conditions, the 24-hour forecast, and the seven-day forecast. And they compile using the Dark Sky API, which mm -hmm. most weather apps these days are using. But using that, which and, and therefore compiling like four or five different sources, six maybe, six different sources of weather information and averaging out with intelligent al algorithms to make predictions based on like the mean possibilities, you can get accurate like i knew exactly what time today it was going to stop raining mm -hmm. and the sun was going to come out and i could go out for a drive in my convertible and it was spot on like i nice. i had it all planned for 2 p.m and 2 p.m the sun came out and it was perfect cool and it sounds like since you replaced other apps with that you appropriated technology you're independent of those other apps i am it works makes sense i'm not independent of predictions in general but yes i'm independent of yeah. the probably 19 other weather applications I own. Yeah. Not that they're not still on my phone. I still have one, two, three, four, five. Still have five apps on my phone for telling me what the weather is, but forecast is the one I go to. Cool. Yeah. All right. 
Well, that's three and three. Yep. And you can be found on Twitter at Ankerly, which is E-N-K-E-R-L-I. Is that right? Exactly. Good deal. And also, uh, you have an account called iEthnographer. Yes. And what's at that account? Well, it's basically my ethnography account. And since I, I was talking a little bit about ethnography, I thought it was uh, relevant. Absolutely. I use it. I, I'm actually pretty proud of that account. I use it much less, which means that I doesn't flood people. Sure. I don't flood people. But also, uh, you know, it's very high quality followers. They're pretty much interested in ethnography. And uh, I get a lot of retweets and, and things like that because it's only the content that's relevant. Cool. All right, so if you're interested in ethnography, also follow iEthnographer. And you have a website at anchorly.com. Yep. And is there anywhere else you want to mention? Well, I'm basically anchorly everywhere because uh, my name is very rare. So uh, you can find me everywhere as long as you can spell my name. And on my main site, I do link to uh, some of my blogs, uh, including blog.anchorly.com and so on. Awesome. All right. And I am Brett Terpstra. I am TT Scoff everywhere and at brettterpstra.com. And that has been episode 93. Thanks a lot for being here, Alex. Thank you. And everyone else, thanks for listening. Have a great week. <laughs>